attention good that's what it was intending to do it's exactly what Peter's trying to do out of all things to follow up cast all your cares on him because he cares for you he comes at us as loud and as roaring as he can with first Peter chapter 5 verse 8 that's where I want you to be this morning so I encourage you to take your Bibles out your iPads your iPhone whatever it is that you use if you've gotten for Christmas download you and you'll have the Word of God with you on a regular basis. We really want you to be in the Word of God. We'll do the screen every once in a while, but we really want you to be in the Word of God. So we encourage you to get there. Peter couldn't be more serious about what it is he's trying to say and the intention that he's trying to grab by using this statement. Our desire this morning by that, and we, we checked in both services. We didn't give anyone a heart attack that we know of. But we really want to get your attention, which is exactly what Peter is trying to do. He said, folks, I want you to be aware. I want you to be alert. I want you to be awake. I want to shake you up. I want to sober you up. I want to do anything I can to make you aware of an enemy that is out to destroy you. An enemy that's out to devour you, not just to trip you up, not to make sure that you have a flat tire so you're late in church or your alarm doesn't go off. I want you to know you've got an enemy who's out to destroy you. So anything I can do, anything that happens to shake you up, wake you up, make you aware of what's going on around you, I'll do. And he uses that analogy of all things, that roaring lion, to get our attention, to help us understand what it is that we're up against. This morning I want to talk to you about an equal opportunity destroyer. I've seen the title this morning in the sermon, Equal Opportunity Destroyer. No respecter of persons, doesn't care who he goes after, is out for all of us, and really wants to make sure It'll do everything and absolutely everything and anything under his power to destroy you. I want to talk about a powerful enemy. One whose intent is destruction on anyone who lets him in. At the end of last Sunday morning's message, I share with you a quote from the governor of Connecticut after the Sandy Hook massacre. And he made this statement that evil has visited our community today. I can't even fathom what it must have been like for him and those around him to have to deal with such a horrible circumstance. So my next statement is nothing about that at all. He all did a phenomenal job of dealing with such tragedy. Three things came to mind, though, with that statement. One is that evil didn't just visit. It had been a resident. Secondly, that it didn't just come that day. It has been around since the beginning of time as we know it. And third, it resides in more communities than that one. Believe it or not, it resides in Butler, and in Butler County, and Butler area, and in Slippery Rock, and in East Brady, and in Saxonburg, and Marwood, and the list is endless. Satan is alive and well and living in our communities. And Peter wants us to be aware of that and recognize the danger that we're in. And so he gives us in verse 8 a very stern warning, a real honest understanding of the consequences if we fail to heed that warning and then next Sunday in verse 9, an answer. And next Sunday, we're going to give you a lot more. If I were to ask you this morning, don't raise your hands, but if I were to ask you to and take a survey this morning and ask you if all of you believe that God is real and that God exists, raise your hands. Hopefully, all of you would. And so if I were to ask you that question, do you believe that God is alive, God is active, God is real, and God actually exists, all of you would hopefully say absolutely. 
If I were to ask you, is the Word of God real? Is this indeed the Word of God? Not just contains the Word of God. Now, make sure you understand that difference. Doesn't just contain the words of God. This is the Word of God. If I were to ask you that you believe, or whether or not you believe, this is the Word of God, hopefully again, all of you would say, yes, absolutely. If I were to ask you, does Satan exist? Is he real? Is he as a real person as the Spirit of God and the living God that I asked you about a moment ago? Is he as real as the Word of God that I hold in my hands? Not all of you would raise your hands. And that's exactly why Peter gives you the warning. And that's exactly where Satan wants us. According to Barna's research, less than half of the people sitting in churches, not those out there somewhere, less than half of those sitting in churches would agree to the first statement, would, would all agree to the first statement, all agree to the second per statement, but only half of them would agree to the third statement. And that is exactly what Satan wants. Matter of fact, when I read this, I was stunned at the fact that less than half of the people surveyed believed the Spirit of God was active, believed that the Spirit of the living God was alive, believed that the Spirit of the living God was as real as the Word of God and God Himself. And do you wonder why the church ceases or at least struggles to make a difference in the world around it? Everybody says on a regular basis, how on earth could we have so many Christians claiming to know the name of Christ, being in churches where there are a thousand or a 10,000 or 20,000 all around this nation, how on earth could this nation have so many Christians in it and seem to have so little influence? Those are two of the reasons I've given them to you this morning. Now, none of you are like that. All of you believe that. But there are some that you know and people that you're aware of and some that go to other churches, not ours, but some that go to other churches that really do not believe that Satan is as real as God himself and as the word of God. And that is exactly what Peter is trying to be aware of. And that is exactly where Satan wants us. Every time I read the word of God, I often, almost all the time, try to put myself in the place of the author. Now it's God breathed. That's what Timothy very clearly tells us, that it's God breathed. So God's speaking and he's using a, a human author. Dozens of them all the way through the Old New Testament. But I often wonder what it was like for the author to hear the words. But the Spirit of God tells him and he begins to pen those words. And he writes it down. So often we look at things like cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And we read that. And, and then as I said last Sunday morning, I've got to wonder if Peter backs up enough to really understand what that meant and what he had seen God do in his life. I've got to believe that Peter writes these words. He really writes them from experience. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to take advice from someone, I, I enjoy advice where they've read it, they've read about it. But if I'm going to take advice from someone, I want to take advice from someone who's lived it. When I'm going to have surgery, whatever that may be, I want to know the guy's not only read about it, but he's done it a lot. I'm still fascinated by the fact they use the word practice medicine. I want him to do it till he gets it down right, then come and do an operation on me. But if I'm going to have a, a major surgery, don't you want to know that this guy's done it a lot? Not that he just read about it somewhere. I think this will work. Dude, don't tell me that or put me out completely. I want to know this really going to work. You're going to do what you say you're going to do. You know exactly what you're going to do. When Peter writes these words, he's not writing it from the vantage point of this is something I've heard about. He's lived it. I've got to believe at least two things came to his mind, two very real 
practical experiences came to Peter's mind when he wrote down those words. Wake up, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. They're in your sermon notes this morning. You have sermon notes in front of you or in your bulletin. They're a gold insert, golden rod, whatever that is. Take it out. A lot of great information I want to give you this morning, but I want to make sure that you have it with you so that you can process this even later. In my heart, I really believe that one of the first things that came to Peter's mind was a moment that he was with Jesus. On a number of occasions, Jesus had said to them, look, guys, I want you to know what's going to happen. They had made a decision to follow him. They had made a decision to become fishers of men. They left everything behind. They followed Jesus for probably of his three-year ministry, at least two and a half years. Sometimes we think when we open the first page or the first chapter of the New Testament, it was the first day of his ministry that he called them and they responded. Probably somewhere in that first six months, he called them. So for now, two and a half years, they'd been with Jesus. On a number of occasions, he said to them, guys, I, I, want, you to, I want you to know what's going to happen. I want to be honest. I want to be straight up. It's not going to go well for me at the end of my life here on earth. I'm going to be betrayed by some friends, as a matter of fact. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to end up dying on a cross. I just want you to know that. On one occasion when he shared that in Matthew chapter 16, he began to explain to them that the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers were going to take him, kill him, and the third day would rise again. Peter took him aside in verse 22 of chapter 16 and said, No way, Lord, not at all. It'll never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said these words, Get thee behind me, Satan. And I've often wondered what it must have been like for Peter to write this word here in Peter when he remembers that moment. When the only time in Jesus' ministry here on earth, when he really said it to one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You have the mind of, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter had just answered one of the most amazing questions on the planet. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? They all had their answers. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus narrowed it down, which is really where he was going. But he said, who do you say that I am? See, it's not enough to know what they say about Jesus, which is a really great question, which is one of the reasons he looked to them. It's not enough to know who people say about Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say I am? Who is he to you? Who do, they say? Who do you say that I am? Peter, the very first one, said what? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And right after that is this incident that I read to you a moment ago where Jesus looked at him and said, Of all things, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have the mind of God. You've got human concerns. I wonder if there was a second one that came to Peter's mind. It follows on the heels of that, similarly so, in Matthew chapter 26. A number of occasions where Jesus went to them and said, I just want you to know what's going to take place. And then he continued in that conversation at one point and said, this very night you're all going to fall away because of me. For it was written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, go ahead, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And of course, the very first one to respond to that was whom? Peter. Maybe them, not me. There are a lot of believers in other churches, Jesus, that's going to do that. They'll let you down, but I'm telling you, I'm with you to the end. I'm with you forever. I will not let you down. And then Jesus gave him those classic phrases, what? I just want you to know, before the night ends and before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And, of course, you know the story that he did. Shortly after making that conversation and that statement, they leave. 
They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch for me. Going a little further, he fell down on his face to the ground and prayed. And that classic prayer that I ended last Sunday morning communion with, Father, if there's any other way, take this from me. And then he went on and said, now I get it. Not my will, but thine be done. Now, on Sunday morning, when I ask you how you're doing, most people ask the typical pat answer. Fine. Doing great. Everything okay? Love Jesus with all my heart. Everything's going good. But you and I both know that it's not always going that well. And that things aren't always okay. One dear saint of God that's been here for a long time, she's with the Lord now. One Sunday morning back in the old sanctuary, she met me in the hall. And she said, how you doing? I said, really want to know? She said, I really do. And I told her. <laughs> she never asked me again. <laughs> when you see somebody that's pretty weighed down, it's obvious. Now, you can put the mask on for a while and it look okay, but when you see somebody that's really heavy, really weighed down with issues and concerns and problems, it's obvious. Now, these guys have been with Jesus night and day all over the place and seen him in every circumstance in life for over two and a half years, and he said, I'm sorrowful, I'm heavy, I'm weighed down. I want you to stay with me for a while. I got to believe they got that. They understood that. I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not that big of a place. It's not like he went somewhere off on another side of the mountain somewhere and prayed, and they had no idea how intense it was. One translation, I think it's in Luke, that says he sweat drops of blood. The only one that says that, and it's pretty intense. i got to believe they noticed that. And yet when Jesus comes back, it's in Matthew 26, in verse 40, when he returned, he found them what? Sleeping. Couldn't you stay with me an hour? Couldn't you keep watch an hour? He asked Peter of all things. And then he made this statement, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And now 20 years later, probably after both of those incidences, I've got to believe they're in fresh as, in, as fresh in Peter's mind as the day he lived them. And to be really honest with you, when I read those two sections of scripture and was reminded again what Jesus said and the intensity of what Peter is saying now, I've got to believe that when he wrote it, they were as fresh in his mind as when he lived it out. In a sense, he's saying, if it can happen to me, Folks, I want you to know it can happen to you. And so now all of these years later, this wise elder who identified himself as an elder at the beginning, at this stage of his life, penned some of the most powerful words written with a very stern warning and very clear consequences. Be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, of all places that the Spirit of God could have told him to write it, he writes it after that other piece when it says, look, I want you to know that you need to be humble. God opposes the proud. He lifts up the humble. And of all the things that Peter had to deal with in his three years of ministry with Jesus, it was pride. It was probably the one thing that overtook him, the one thing that he had left unyielded until after the power of the Spirit of God landed on him in the Acts experience that I ended with last Sunday morning when he fully submitted himself to Christ, and from then on, it was a different Peter. And so when he writes this word, God poses the proud and lifts up the humble, and then he writes verse 8, I just want you to know, be alert, be sober, be clear-minded, because your enemy Satan is out to kill you. He understood that because he lived it out. In your sermon notes this morning, there are three levels of thinking when it comes to Satan. As I said a moment ago, one is that he's nowhere, he really doesn't exist. Most people that believe the statistic that I shared with you last 
a few moments ago about the lack of existence or belief in Satan, believe that he really is just simply a description of evil. So when someone talks about Satan, he's really talking about evil. He in and of himself doesn't exist. Evil certainly does. I get that. But devil really isn't anywhere as a physical being. The second belief is that he's everywhere. There's a demon under every bush. There's a devil behind every bush and a devil behind every problem. So they've got demons of sickness and demons of cough and demons of cold and demons of whatever. The list is endless. When I didn't get up on time this morning, the devil made me do it. The devil kept me out of church. The devil kept me being mad. The devil took me into the bar. This is endless, and they'll blame every single thing on him, and he's got a demon under every bush. The third is the real one. That's the one that's the truth, and that is that he's real and a definite adversary. You talk to missionaries in any country around the globe, they think we're insane for doubting it. They see it all the time. One of the sad things about America is we ignore it. We think that it's in some other country, in a third world country, where they're celebrating animism and spiritism and, and all of those issues. And so they face it. We never do. And again, as I said at the beginning, that is exactly where Satan wants us. You talk to any missionary around the world, they deal with this on a regular basis. They're so convinced of chapter, they're so convinced of number three, they don't even question it. Now, Paul said we face three enemies: the world, the flesh, and the devil. What I have found true in all my years of ministry is that we underestimate the influence of all three. And again, which is why Peter warns us and where Satan wants us. During World War I, when war was breaking out, the British War Ministry sent out a coded message to troops in the furthest regions of Africa. The message said this, war declared, arrest all enemy aliens in your territory. Reply came back from that area after a while that said this, we have arrested 10 Germans, 6 Dutch, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Australians, and an American. Could you please tell us who we are at war with? I want you to know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, who we are at war with. And I want you to know he's as real as this place in existence. Merrill Unger, in his book, Demons in the World Today, said there is absolutely no excuse for the church to surrender its power to heal and deliver from satanic oppression. In the very measure that it does, it advertises its bankruptcy and makes itself a weak institution that no longer commands the respect of those who really need the answers they come to give. No wonder so many are seeking reality in oriental religions and non-Christian religions and the occult. Christian faith is so contaminated with man's opinions and an effective presentation of Jesus Christ that it's become a hollow shell totally powerless to affect people, which is what it was intending to do to begin with. Dave Wilkerson, the pastor of Times Square Church said, if you're a member of the body of Christ, I want you to know Satan's after you. You may not think about it. You may not even want to accept it. But if you've determined to follow Christ with all your heart, Satan has marked you out for destruction. And he's going to flood your life in any way he can to keep you from walking away, walking in that faith with Christ and walking away from God. That's why the apostle Peter warns us. Matter of fact, in chapter 4, he said, hey, the end of all things is near. Be very sober-minded. Watch unto prayer. No time for lightness. No time for half-hearted Christianity. We need to understand exactly what we're up against and that it's a matter of life and death. Why the need to be so serious? He said the time is near. And the enemy has turned up the heat. He's a stalking us like a lion hiding in the grass, waiting for an opportunity to pounce. And he wants to devour us and utterly destroy us and destroy our faith in Christ. Now, some Christians don't want to talk about it. They're better off ignoring it. They say... 
Others try to reason it out of existence. Out of existence. Liberal theologians, for example, argue that there isn't even a heaven and there isn't a hell and there is certainly no devil. The enemy of our souls is not going away. There are very few biblical characters, that's in your sermon notes this morning, very few biblical characters that have been identified so clearly and so extensively. In the Word of God, he is described as Lucifer, Satan, devil, deceiver, hinderer, the wicked one, the usurper, imposter, accuser, devourer, God of this world, ruler of darkness, and old serpent, just to name a few. India, I don't know how you kept up with that one. All of those descriptions remind us and tell us very clearly that Satan is real. He wields enormous power and he's at work in our nation, our cities, our churches, our homes, and our lives. And we better not ignore him and we better clearly understand his methods. He's an enemy of God and an enemy of the Christian and his sole purpose is not to trip us up but to destroy us. His army is made up of demonic forces, world and Everything within it, within that context of the supernatural. Paul identifies it in your sermon notes this morning. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It may seem like that at times. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Get that clear in our minds. To survive the battle, you need to understand everything from a biblical worldview. Worldview is that system in your sermon notes that we use for explaining the world around us and how we fit in. I've given you some examples this morning. I found it fascinating when I was reading from Barna's group, who's probably the best Christian researcher out there. He gives seven basic identities of what it means to have a biblical worldview. One is that there is absolute moral truth. It's the Word of God. The Scripture is accurate. Jesus was without sin. Satan literally exists. God is omnipotent and omniscient. Salvation is by grace alone, and you and I as believers in Christ have the personal responsibility to win others to Jesus. Less than half would agree with those seven things who sit in churches today. And we wonder why the church seems to lack power and seems to influence the world around it when there are so many thousands of people who claim to know the name of Christ. I'll give you some examples this morning of other kinds of worldviews, but the biblical worldview says there is a battle since the beginning of time, not simply between good and evil, but between God and his angelic forces and Satan and his demonic forces. Control of humanity is what the battle is all about. The difference is that God operates on a premise that he offers us a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, based solely on faith and salvation coming from him alone. And he offers us, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, everything necessary for life and eternity. Satan, on the other hand, pulls out all the stops. He works to bring about destruction and death, but he offers in the beginning of that fun and excitement. It's a thrill. You'll enjoy it. It's great. It's not going to hurt you. Only to leave you empty and hollow and powerless. He works most often within the realm of the mind through what are called strongholds. You know and I know that your mind is one of your greatest assets or what? One of your worst enemies. Best definition of a stronghold is a beachhead. Uh, 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 an attack in our thinking that provides the enemy an ongoing basis of effective attack against my Christian experience. When I tolerate sin in my life, I've given him access. Now, you and I both know that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, now this may be the premise that you're going to really have to work through. Romans very clearly tells us that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. 
So one of the best ways to tell that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ is not that I raised my hand, signed a card, or said a prayer. One of the best ways to tell that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ is that the Spirit of God lives in me. And one of the ways of understanding that the Spirit of God is within me is when I disobey God, I'm not obedient to His Word, I do things He's not pleased with, the Spirit of God tells me that. It's not just simply your conscious or an awareness. It's the Spirit of God saying to me, that's not right, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have said that. Look, you're letting lust stay there way too long. You've looked at that picture way too long. You lied and you know it. You need to go back and correct that. You're not stating this right. You're not, whatever the list may be that could be endless in all of our lives, when the Spirit of God points out those things and you know it's Him, that's a great indication that God by His Spirit and by His power is living in you. It's one of the greatest indications that you're a follower of Christ. If that doesn't happen, let me help you become a follower of Christ. Because it's not enough just to sit in a pew or sit in a church or go to church or simply raise your hand or say some words. It's a matter of understanding fully that I'm a sinner without hope and that everything that I've done is just pleased God and gone against his word and violated his word. And the only hope that I have is Jesus. So many people just simply come to faith in Christ. If you die tonight, you know you're going to heaven? No, can I tell you? Yep. You want to do that? Absolutely. Why would I want to go anywhere else? But it's not a full understanding of my sin and how I violated God's word and how I violated his commands. How far away from him I walked and to realize that he is my only hope. And then I've committed my life to Christ. And when that happens, the spirit of God lives in me and I know that. But when I tolerate sin in my life and I allow it to remain there and you know the spirit of God has said that, you know he's pointing it out, but you ignore it or hope it goes away or you just like to hold on to that for a little bit more, all you've simply done is given Satan total access to that area. Now I get it, we face the world, the flesh, and the enemy and that's absolutely true, but I'm telling you, when you've allowed that to remain, you've given him an open door. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Otherwise, you'll give Satan a foothold, which will eventually become a stronghold or a fortress. And out of that, he'll constantly, continually attack you. Until eventually, it will destroy you or you may walk away from Christ. I've used the illustration before, I think even a number of months ago, about the circus elephant. Still, one of, to me, one of the most vivid if you've ever been to the circus, you know when they're not in the performance ring, they're out back somewhere tied to a stake with a little chain. The stake's about two or three feet in the ground. If you've ever seen them on TV, you know how powerful they are. And you know that all he had to do is lift his foot and walk away. But why doesn't he? And I've given you the illustration that when they're young, they're tied to an immovable object, chain or a rock or a tree, and then the chain is put with a collar around their foot, and they just keep pulling and pulling and tugging until it chafes until it wears them out, until he realizes that it's impossible to give in, to get free, and so they give in and give up. And now they're not chained to the stake. They're chained to the thought that I'll never break free. That's exactly where Satan wants us. And you allow that to remain, where you try to get victory over it, you never seem to because you've never dealt with the root cause or the honest issue. You'll be convinced that I'll never get free. This is the way I'm supposed to live my Christian life. And you'll continue on until it eventually consumes you or takes over. Why Paul said, be strong. Recognize and be clearly aware of what the enemy of our souls is out to do. Those fortresses in our mind, we allow him to stay, provide him an avenue, 
or an access into our life. Pete Maravich was one of the basketball players from the 1970s, called himself Pistol Pete. He said in a story one time about himself, he said, I started with one drink when I was age 14. Got a toehold, then a foothold, then a stronghold, then an obsession, and then a possessment. In your sermon notes, I've given you some options this morning. It's not for everybody, and it's not, anybody, or not always for everyone, but there are three most common areas that men and women face, four for women. Uh, number one, two, and three for men are lost power or wealth or success. Lost power, wealth, or success. I'm not talking about looking at a clip or looking at a video or seeing a beautiful woman. I'm talking about what happens when we allow that to remain. One of the reasons we say you've got to stay away from all the stuff, pornography and on the list is endless, that gets you there because once you allow that to remain, never deal with it, know it's there, it tantalizes your mind. Some say the adrenal or the part of the brain that's stimulated in sexual arousement is the same as what cocaine and heroin does. And one of the reasons that we sometimes can't break free is we never, ever deal with the root cause. Nobody wakes up on a Sunday mo- or nobody wakes up on a Tuesday morning and says, wow, what a great day to have an affair. Tuesday, the sun's shining, why not? Nobody ever, ever does that. What they've done is allowed it to remain, never dealt with, like the tantalization that goes with that. They allow it to remain until eventually they act upon that. That's why when John talks about it, he talks about this progression of sin, the lust of the eyes. Then I'm attracted to it, I allow it to remain, I don't deal with it, and eventually it's a destruction. For a lot of men, it's power. I just love to climb the ladder. I want to get there as far as I can. I want to rise as high as I can. For others, it's wealth. Not just simply wealth in monetary ways, but it's success or the accumulation of things. If I just had one more, if it was just a little shinier, a little bigger, a little faster, if I just had one more this or one more that or a little larger, a little newer, and the list is endless until all of a sudden I'm consumed with this desire to have more and more and more and more. Instead of ever finding myself like Paul, I'm satisfied with what I have. For women, it's four things. Most common, not always, but anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, and jealousy. Notice how vastly different we are from one another, which is how important they are to be dealt with. There are a number of sources of strongholds. They're in your notes this morning. One is growing up in a home where there's been abuse. In all the years of ministry, I've spent probably the last 25 years at least dealing in the context of deliverance, of helping Christians, all of them that I've dealt with are Christians, get free from some of the demonic oppression they've been under. I got it in my locked file, but if I were to go back through it, I would say probably somewhere around 60% of the ones that I've walked through those times with grew up in a home with abuse. Almost accepted it. Some of them excused it. And sadly, some felt they deserved it, which is the worst. And they just allowed it to be there, a part of their life, and never really ever dealt with that issue. Couldn't be more excited by the fact that starting next Monday uh, in your, in your uh, bulletin is Tom Laird, who's actually going to be here. Amanda's been here for the last six or seven months in our building doing Christian counseling. And Tom starts next Monday on the 21st. And you talk about timing of being able to walk people through some of the issues of life and deal with some of the circumstances, it couldn't be better than that for the opportunity for him to be here. Experience is through life where we're asking, why God? And it's not a matter, I've said that. It's not a matter of saying it or wondering, why God did you allow that to happen? I don't understand it. Why us? Why me? Why them? Why now? 
It's not those. It's allowing it to remain so long that instead of drawing me toward God, which is what heartache is supposed to do, it pushes me away from God. And then it becomes a bitterness where it remains in there. And one of the things that God's Word clearly in the Old and New Testament clearly points out to us, be very careful about bitterness, that you allow it to take root because once it takes root, it's hard to get out. False doctrine, we'll talk about it a little bit next week and real specifically in Second Peter. Exposure with the occult, drugs and alcohol, we were rendered passive. I'm still fascinated by the fact that guys or girls, doesn't really matter who it is. Look, it was only one, it's only a couple, it's a hard week, it's a long week. I only do a few and then all of a sudden they... They're consumed by it, similar to what I said with Pete Maravich. And they put themselves in a position where they're unaware of their faculties, unaware of their mental capabilities, and they open themselves up for anything when they're in that position. We can talk till Jesus comes back. One drink, you know, if I don't drink or if I don't smoke, then I'm going to heaven now. It has nothing to do with it. I'm just telling you, do not put yourself in a position where you're rendered passive and give access to the enemy. And you will in those contexts when you allow yourself to be consumed by drugs or alcohol. Longstanding rebellion where, I, where I'm, I'm constantly battling back and forth whether or not I want to follow God or whether or not I don't want to follow God, give me, giving my life to Jesus. How many of you heard the experience? I accepted Christ when I was six and then walked away for a long period of time and then maybe came back and that's really not to be the place of our spiritual journey. And number seven is the one that I just want to finish with this morning, excessive media exposure. Excessive media exposure. Violence in movies, violence in video games. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, if your kids are buying black ops and some of those ones, man, you really need to rethink that. You can be mad at me till Jesus comes back, but I'm telling you, you really need to rethink that. You know the number one movie in the theaters last week that grossed the most amount? Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 3D. And I'm going, are you kidding me? And yet I know believers who sit in churches, none of you, but others who sit in other churches, <laughs> who expose themselves to things on a regular basis, like not that necessarily, but radical movies, violent movies, violent video games, the list is endless, and wonder what in the world has happened to me in my spiritual journey. Did you know that in the Super Bowl in a few weeks, People are going to spend millions for 30 seconds of your time. And anyone can sit there and say, for two hours, I consumed it, and it didn't bother me. Ah, oh, there was some foul language in it. There was some heavy language. There was some violence, but it doesn't bother me. They're going to spend millions for 30 seconds or maybe 60 seconds of your time, millions in the Super Bowl, regularly a million dollars for every 30 seconds, for 30 seconds of your time, and those people out there somewhere would sit two hours in a movie or hours in front of video games watching violence nonstop and doesn't think that it affects them? That's impossible. Even the world knows better than that. That's why they're selling you everything under the sun. And trashy movies and trashy shows on television. My, my wife, you know what she has at home besides NASCAR and sports? Every version of Andy Griffith that's ever been done. Because she said nothing's been good since. Now, I, I, that's, that's not true. It is true that she has every version of Andy Griffith. 
But come on, you and I both know it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that some of these shows are trash. And the more we tolerate them, what? The more they'll do it. The filter is gone. PG-13 lands with the F-bomb every once in a while, let alone R. The list is endless, and I'm still amazed by the fact we constantly let our kids or ourselves be exposed to this stuff and think that it doesn't affect us. It does. In many cases, we've given him access to something that he would love to use to destroy us. Can a Christian be possessed? No. Can they be oppressed? Absolutely. Can they be victimized by the enemy in an area of their life that's been unyielded? Absolutely. So what do we do? What do we do about all of this? That's a really good question. See, that's why you're more intelligent than those out there. Because next week I'm going to give you the answer to that. I really need you to come back. The classic thing when I say next week is that you check out. Even if you don't physically get up and leave, you mentally check out. So don't for a minute. A number of years ago, and I've used it here before, when somebody gives me the best illustration of what I'm trying to say this morning, is they talk about our, our body, our physical being, and our spiritual being being a home, being a house. And I've said it before, we, we, so we invite Jesus in. We let him in a living room. We like that. And so every Sunday morning, we invite him to the living room of our lives. We socialize. We relate to one another. We connect with him, and we sing praises to his name. And then, you know, the rest of the week, we just kind of go on with our lives. There's some who really enjoy that relationship, so they invite him to the kitchen to have a meal with him. Not just communion, but they really, you know, connect with him on a regular basis and, and all of that. But then there are those areas in our life that you don't want him to go to. They don't want to yield over to him. They, they know it's there. They know they should give him access, but they don't. They hold on to it for a variety of reasons. They hold on to it. And all I'm, what I'm saying this morning is if Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, doesn't have control over every single area of your life, someone else does. You do the math. What I'm saying is Peter very clearly aware of who else is there. The world, the flesh, the enemy, all three. But if you've allowed that to remain for such a long period of time and left it unyielded to the Spirit of God, you have opened up a door and once that door is opened, it's very difficult. And his desire is not just to reside every once in a while, to hang out on Saturday night or Friday night when you're out blasted away, or just to hang out when you're at that movie or watching that stuff. His desire is destruction. Don't ever underestimate that. Let me pray. Lord, I don't know what it would ever do without your word. How on earth would we live out this life that you've called us to? How will we become what you've designed us to be? And yet you never left us alone. You didn't leave us wondering. You left us with very clear instruction, extremely clear warnings, great examples all the way through the Old and New Testament. And 2,000 years later, it's just as powerful as when it was written. So God, I lay my family before you. I love this church like they're my family. And I ask during these moments together that you in this quiet moment will reveal to us by your spirit, those areas in our life that we need to address. We can no longer to remain there, but need to be really honest about and need to address. Listen to his voice and let him speak.
the biggest issue with what he may have said or what you already know is not just knowing it, recognizing it, but what will I do about it? That's what we're here for. Not just to pray with you for today, which certainly we can, and some elders will be here to pray with you, but really to help you through the process. And so if you need that, God has provided in a miraculous way some incredible Christian counselors, some great resources, some good community groups, some good fellowship groups, some series 30, whatever that may be, to help in your walk with God. Do not try to do it alone. About a year ago, somebody came to my wife and said, why does Denny yell at us every Sunday? <laughs> or at least sounds like he's yelling at us. Is he mad? No. And so... Sometimes it comes across that way, and it's never my intention. I grew up with a dad who everything was volume up to here. It was pretty loud, and so sometimes I come across that way. Know that what I'm sharing you this morning is as much love to you as I would any of my children, because that's how much and how deeply I love this church and love you as a family of God. So if we can help you, let us do that. Next week, some great resources. And Peter gives us one. We're going to be on that. Uh, so I hope you're here. God bless you. Have a great, great